Hi, this is Oliver Stone, and I've just done Books on Pod with Trey Elling about my memoir, Chasing the Light. It was a very interesting set of questions Trey asked, and I think you'll enjoy the show. Hello, readers. Glenn Kenny is a film critic and author of the book Made Men, the Story of Goodfellas. Glenn, thank you for the time. How are you today? Oh, I'm great. Thank you. Why devote an entire book to Goodfellas? Well, that's an interesting question, and it's kind of funny because when I uh, signed the contract to do the book, I had lunch with Jay Cox, who co-wrote the screenplays for Silence and Gangs of New York. And before the coronavirus stuff started kicking in, myself and another film critic, Farron Neme, a good friend, had lunch with Jay about once a month. And I told Jay, hey, I'm going to write a book about the making of Goodfellas. And he said to me, are you sure there's a whole book in that? Because the actual production of the film went pretty well. The movie went only about 10 or 15 days over schedule, only a little bit over budget. There were no great meltdowns. The post-production went smoothly, and the film's opening had some controversy attached to it, but that wasn't unusual for a Scorsese picture, given what had happened with Last Temptation of Christ. The controversy was much uh, less intense. So, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a feeling like, well, what's the story? And also the fact that the magazine GQ had done a pretty extensive oral history of the movie about 10 years prior, which was an excellent oral history, but did tend to fall into that Chris Farley show kind of syndrome. And then we did this <laughs> shot, and it was great. <laughs> so where's the book? And I thought the book was located in a few other factors, which were included the film's ultimate cultural impact, the way that it changed Martin Scorsese's career, the way that it changed the life of Henry Hill, who got the whole thing started by talking to Nicholas Pileggi, the crime writer, and whose story Goodfellas tells. And I thought that all those things combined actually made the book the potentially exciting thing that it became. And then as I did my reporting, there were a few other things that came into play, including the perspective of Barbara Dufina, Martin Scorsese's ex-wife and frequent producer who felt that she was kind of demoted from her proper credits on the film. And that became a part of the story that was pretty interesting, too. Now, as you just mentioned, this movie is based on Nicholas Pileggi's book, Wise Guy, which is an Inside the Mob chronicle with info supplied by real-life former mafia soldier Henry Hill. How was Pileggi able to gain such access to Hill, considering that he and his family were in witness protection at the time? It was kind of a serendipitous thing that Pileggi met Henry Hill because of Edward McDonald. He was doing a story about the super prosecutors, New York prosecutors who were getting amazing stuff done in terms of the mob. And Edward McDonald was the uh, prosecutor who got Henry Hill into the witness protection program. So he met Henry through Edward, I think. And he saw in Henry his garrulousness, his uh, volubility, and also the quality that he thought would make for an amazing book, which was the fact that if you asked him a question, he could answer with total detailed recall. And Pileggi had been writing about mobsters since the late 50s and knew many of them socially. He was from a neighborhood where a lot of Calabresi people, he himself and his family was from that region of Italy, and a lot of mobsters from that region of Italy came over to New York and set up shop in New York. And his father told him to go to a restaurant in Little Italy where he could meet these mob guys. 
and he'd been talking to these guys for many years, and they were all kind of all cut from the same cloth. They didn't have great memories. Henry Hill, on the other hand, remembered everything because he was so excited to be a gangster. He found the gangster life so exciting that he just lapped it all up. So he knew he had a gold mine, so to speak, of anecdotes. And Henry was a guy who wanted to talk. I think there's a fundamental loneliness to Henry Hill after he's ratted out all his former colleagues and friends and he's in witness protection. He's not among people who he understands or knows. And so it's just tough for him. And he's very lonely. He used to call Nick Pelleggi's house and then he'd talk to his wife, Nora Ephron, who wrote a script, My Blue Heaven, based on her chats with Henry Hill to a certain extent. That's a comedy about a mobster who is lost in witness protection program and complains about not being able to get arugula in California. <laughs> yeah, that was fascinating to learn that that was a, a one-off of Goodfellas, the uh, Steve Martin vehicle, and the connection between Nora Ephron and Pelleggi, of course. Now, how receptive was Pelleggi when Scorsese learned of this book and actually wanted to adapt it into a film? Well, Pelleggi had been a longtime admirer of Scorsese's films. He told me he'd seen all of them, including the documentary Italian-American about Scorsese's own family and had a lot of affinity for that, obviously, growing up Italian-American in the outer boroughs of New York and Scorsese in Manhattan. In a sense, Little Italy was, except for the tourist aspect of it, Little Italy was almost an outer borough kind of place. So they had a lot of affinity and he'd seen a lot of Scorsese's films. He liked them all. And because of Nora's knowledge of the film industry, he knew some filmmakers. I think he knew Brian De Palma prior to working with Scorsese. And as much as he liked and admired Brian De Palma, didn't think that Brian De Palma's style of filmmaking was suited to making a film of, of the book that was called Wise Guy. When Scorsese read about Wise Guy or read part a portion of it, people have different recollections of what was read. He had his assistant find Pelleggi's number at New York Magazine, and they called him there. And he wasn't in, so there was a message left for him. And he told me that he thought it was his friend, the film critic David Denby, doing an impersonation and kind of trying to prank him. So he didn't return the call. And he didn't return the call for several days. And then someone working on Scorsese's Color of Money, who had worked on a picture with Nora, called Nora and said, Nick's not returning the calls. You know what's up? And she confronted Pelleggi, and Pelleggi said, Nah, that's not Scorsese, that's Denby, he's BSing me. And Nora's like, no, it's Scorsese. And so the call was eventually returned. <laughs> and he didn't need much persuading after that. Yeah, that's good to hear. Now, Joe Pesci was one of the first actors to be cast. Why was he reluctant to take the role at first? It's hard to talk about Joe Pesci because Joe Pesci very rarely talks to the press, and he doesn't talk about his process as an actor, and he doesn't talk about the decisions he makes as an actor. So it's kind of a tough thing. I don't want to speculate, but I feel like Pesci has said in interviews, he did an interview with Mary Pat Kelly, a friend of Scorsese's who wrote a very valuable book about Scorsese called Martin Scorsese, A Journey, a little after Goodfellas was released. And he has said that he never wanted to be a performer. This is one of those inverted stories where the parents actually encouraged him to perform because they didn't want him to be either in poverty or swept up in mob life where he was brought up. So he's always been reluctant to a certain extent. And especially when working with a director like Scorsese, who loves actors and really loves to work with them and is very compassionate and 
just gets a lot of enjoyment out of them, but is also very demanding of them. And there's a lot of emotional stuff in a Scorsese film that he won't necessarily get in something like My Cousin Vinny or With Honors or some of the other films that he made at the time. And I wonder if he was reluctant for that reason or reluctant because it was another monster movie. And we met with Scorsese. They met privately and they talked it over. And Pesci said, there's some things I think I can do here that if you let me do them, it can make the movie a little more special. One of them was to recount to Scorsese this anecdote of a confrontation in a nightclub that resulted in the scene in the Bamboo Lounge where Pesci's character Tommy challenges Henry Hill, how am I funny? That came out of these improvisations and these recountings of real-life anecdotes. And you might think that Pelleggi would balk at such a thing because it didn't happen in Henry Hill's life. It happened in Joe Pesci's life. It didn't happen in Pelleggi's book. But Pelleggi is smart enough and knows this world enough to know that it could have happened in Henry Hill's world very easily. And maybe a variation of it did. Who knows? But he understood that as long as Scorsese was being true to the world that Henry Hill came from, which was a world that Pelleggi knew very well, then everything was going to be all right. Anything could go as long as you kept within that realm. And that was a rule that served them quite well during the making of the movie and rejiggering the scenes to incorporate this kind of improvisation, use of personal anecdotes from these people's past. A lot of the extras and a lot of the supporting players were people who had been in the life themselves. That's why they have a lot of authenticity because they really are criminals or cops or in one case, a criminal and a cop in the case of Louis Eppolito, who's story I talk about in the book. And Pesci was a part of that. His background came from nightclubs in New Jersey, all these mobbed up places. You couldn't be a nightclub performer in the United States from the 1930s, maybe on without rubbing up against mob people. And that happened a lot. Well, as you just mentioned, Pesci rarely gives interviews. If you could ask him one question about Goodfellas, what would it be? Actually, I had a question. I asked De Niro about it. And it's a weird technical question. When he's yelling in his scenes, there's this thing that happens with his voice where the volume goes up, the volume modulates, and it also he also starts hitting a higher register. And he will almost seem like he's out of breath or he's making himself out of breath and straining for this effect like, How the fuck am I funny? <laughs> or when he's really super upset, I didn't want to bleed on your tablecloths and i wanted to ask him if in achieving that effect he on his training as a singer this kind of breath control that was my question that question i asked robert de niro and he didn't have an answer (laughs) that's one question i would ask joe pesci i'm weird that way so pesci plays the tommy character was ray liotta a shoe-in for henry hill no ray liotta was not a shoe-in erwin winkler did not want him for the part he didn't think he had the charisma I don't see how he could think that. If you look at Something Wild, the movie he made with Jonathan Demme a couple of years prior to that, where he plays the psychotic ex-boyfriend Ray, he's got that twinkle in his eye. He's got that killer smile. That's something that I think was great in incarnating Henry Hill. But Erwin Winkler didn't see it. They were talking some young actors. Terry Semmel at Warner Brothers suggested Tom Cruise, which was not a good idea. <laughs> but what happened was that Ray Liotta spotted Erwin and his wife Margot at a restaurant in Hollywood and asked him to talk, asked him to sit down and talk just casually. 
And in that 10-minute conversation, Erwin doesn't talk about what was said, but in that 10-minute conversation, Erwin was turned around. He was convinced, and that was that, because Scorsese did want him, and I think Pileggi liked him too. You know, it's funny, I spoke with Oliver Stone a little while back about his new memoir, and he mentions in the book, and we talked about it in the conversation, that Tom Cruise was interested in the Charlie Sheen role for Wall Street. And while I could have seen Tom Cruise pulling off that role in Wall Street, there is zero chance Tom Cruise would have made Goodfellas better. No, and Erwin Winkler, in talking about this, was very diplomatic relative to Cruise. I mean, it was kind of funny because he dismissed Madonna. Terry Semel and Warner's also wanted Madonna to play Karen Hill, and Erwin dismissed that out of hand. But Erwin, I think, very much wanted me to understand that he thinks very highly of Tom Cruise, and that in his mind, especially at that time, Tom Cruise playing a cocaine-addicted half-Italian mobster was not something that Tom Cruise would have wanted to do, and that he would have understood that he was not well-suited for the role. Although, you know, Tom Cruise does like to go outside of his comfort zone. Maybe this might not have been an example of wanting to do that. And it isn't as if there wasn't precedent because Tom Cruise had worked with Scorsese on The Color of Money and was very good in that film. People bring up that anecdote and they talk about how ridiculous it is, but it's a little less ridiculous on the face of it when you remind yourself, well, yeah, Color of Money, pretty much right before Goodfellas. There's the um, life lessons in between those two, but Scorsese enjoyed directing him. They had a good time. Scorsese had a harder time with Paul Newman on that picture than he had with Tom Cruise because Scorsese was not used to Newman's way of working. Now, De Niro was an important addition to the cast as Jimmy Conway, obviously because he's De Niro, and also added an extra level of punch in terms of movie stardom to this film. As you talked about a couple of answers ago, you spoke to De Niro for this book. Did he ever get defensive with the question that you asked him? And if so, what triggered the reaction and why is it so important? He was extremely pleasant and very cooperative. He was interested in helping out, and he left the door open. And I'm really grateful that I was able to speak to him, and he was so generous with me. And I go in the book about some of the things that were more challenging because he doesn't process his career the way that we fans and journalists do. I was talking about the Scorsese-De Niro dynamic, and there was the fact that prior to Goodfellas, the last two pictures they worked on, both Raging Bull and King of Comedy, were ideas that Scorsese had not been interested in doing, and that De Niro brought to Scorsese and convinced him to do. When I went to the University of Texas in Austin and looked at De Niro's papers, there's a draft of the King of Comedy script, and inside De Niro's notes read, Marty doesn't want to do King of Comedy. Why does everything have to be weird and violent? That was the reason he wanted to not do (laughs) King of Comedy at a certain point. But when it came to Goodfellas, their careers had changed, and... King of Comedy did a lot of damage to Scorsese's marketability, whereas De Niro then moved on to films like Midnight Run and became a movie star, which was not something that his agent Harry Uffland would have predicted earlier in De Niro's career. So in this case, for Goodfellas, Scorsese asked De Niro for a favor because De Niro brought a new kind of box office clout and star power to the mix and would help get the movie made. Ray Liotta was not a name at the time. Lorraine Bracco was not a name at the time. There were people in the supporting cast, Paul Sorvino, 
who were well-known, but they were well-known as supporting and character actors. You need a star. And so De Niro was a star. So when I mentioned to De Niro, when Scorsese approached you about Goodfellas, your position, your status in Hollywood had changed quite a bit. And he just sort of said, how so? And I said, well, you're in these hit movies. And by dint of being in these hit movies, you got a lot more leverage. He says, ah, you get more attention. As if having this office, this floor of a building in Tribeca, somehow just sort of magically appeared. <laughs> Again, he doesn't process these things a certain way. You know, we moved past that. And it was still hard to get the issue I was talking about addressed. But that was fine, too, because there were other sources for that. The bottom line is that Terry Simmel and his boss at Warner Brothers said, we need a star. And Scorsese and Nick Pileggi went and talked to Bob De Niro. They got Bob De Niro to say, okay. And they had their star and the final green light. Now, a big part of this book is literally you going through each scene, breaking the scene down, and also giving some background information on maybe the scene itself or the actors involved in the scene. And obviously it begins with the first 13 minutes of this movie, which is Henry Hill's Boyhood. Why is that such an important part in establishing this gangster theme? Partially it's because it's a portion of the film that has the most personal resonance for Scorsese. Not that Scorsese aspired to be a gangster, but he definitely was the boy looking out the window. As he grew up, he had a severe asthma condition, and he didn't go outside a lot. He didn't play sports. Part of his cinephilia came from the fact that he had to stay at home and he'd watch films on television. But he'd also look at life going on outside his window, and that first shot of young Henry Hill's green eye looking down at the taxi stand of the pizza place that's a reflection of Scorsese's childhood. And he goes through Henry Hill's childhood very briskly. It's not a movie that dwells on the early days, but it hits the high notes in a way that kind of defines the pre-credit sequence with the horror of the stabbing of Billy Bats in the car and all that stuff. That creates such a harrowing impression that in order to get the effect you're looking for from the movie, you kind of have to lighten it up. So it's this guided tour of the delight that young Henry Hill takes in finding his inner bad boy and being that bad boy, blowing up a, a taxi lot, learning that if a guy's walking down the street bleeding, you don't mess up the pizza parlor's aprons by trying to help him out. And the main thing to do with that guy is not to help him out, but to get him out of sight. These little mob lessons that he's learning from Tutty and all that stuff. And then, of course, he's selling cigarettes with young Tommy, bootlegging, and then he gets his first pinch and he learns the two lessons that Jimmy Conway says, keep your mouth shut and never rat on your friends. And it's a whole little mini seminar in how to be a boy gangster that carries through to the adult Henry when we then see him and Tommy outside the airline diner. Christopher Cerrone is very winning. That's part of the reason that the film is so, I won't say deceptive, but it's part of the ingratiating aspect of the film is that despite the fact that young Henry Hill is committing crimes, he's such a cute kid that you kind of get this Dickensian sense of a charmer outside the law. And that sets up the dynamic for how you're going to go along for the ride with these guys as the film goes on. There are so many beautiful shots in this film, and that certainly includes the character intros at the Bamboo Lounge, which included a mix of actors and mob guys 
Who was the guy who played Fat Andy, and what was his backstory? Fat Andy. Well, that is Louis Eppolito, I think. And that's a terrifying tale. Louis Eppolito wrote a book called Mafia Cop, which was all about his days as a New York City police officer and how he had a hard time getting into the force because he grew up with mobsters. And the book is this amazing bit of self-aggrandizement. After he left the force, into his book, he was too honest. He became a hitman. The Meet the Gang shot in the Bamboo Lounge was shot kind of in between the time of Louis Eppolito leaving the force and Louis Eppolito becoming a murderer for hire. He became a murderer for hire, and he killed about, as documented by law enforcement, he killed at least eight people and was preparing to come to New York and kill John Gotti's Lieutenant Sammy the Bull Gravano, who was at the time testifying against him in court when he got nabbed. So that's a dangerous guy right there. There's other guys in that shot who are also pretty dangerous. And then even supporting character actor like Sonny Darrow, who plays Sonny Butts, the Bamboo Lounge owner, got a extortion rap many years later himself. So when they were casting these guys, Ellen Lewis, the casting director, and Joe Reedy, the first assistant director, really had to keep their eyes on them because they weren't guys who would give their social security number <laughs> to the payroll people. Um, and you never knew who they'd be bringing with them to the set or what they'd be taking off the set. When the props guy, Bob De Niro, for the scene where he comes in and is gambling in the early part of the movie, and the props guy went and got $2,000 out of his own savings account, and he had to make sure to pick that up and count it after every time they printed a take because he didn't know where it would go otherwise. It's another one of those little things adding authenticity to the movie, huh? Unbelievable. How tough was the continuous shot when Henry took Karen to the Copa through that back entrance? They did that about seven times. And the funny thing is they didn't do it seven times because it kept messing up at different points of the shot. The shot went great almost every time they did it. But when they sit down and the camera swerves over to Henny Youngman, Henny Youngman who's playing himself, the nightclub comedian whose famous line is, take my wife, please, he kept flubbing his line. <laughs> so that's why they had to keep doing it. And the funny thing is, you look at that shot and you say, well, they clearly must have wrapped after doing that shot. No, they did a bunch of setups after that shot. They worked very efficiently because it was the real Copacabana interior. They did almost all the Copacabana interior shots on that particular day including the Bobby Vinton shot and the shot when with, they all go see Jerry Vale with and the girlfriends. Tommy gets upset about, I don't want to be kissing Nat King Cole. <laughs> all that stuff was done, I think, within one or two days. The Sweet Lounge is the setting for one of the more brutal moments in the film where Billy Bats trash talks Tommy, who comes back at close and nearly beats him to death with Jimmy. Ultimately, they do kill him, obviously. Bats is played by Frank Vincent. There are numerous examples from their careers where Pesci and Vincent clash in a pretty memorable manner. Where does this chemistry come from? <laughs> they were friends. They were both in the nightclub scene in New Jersey, and they were both in a 70s regional mob film made in New Jersey called, among other things, The Death Collector. They didn't appear in any scenes in the film together, but they were both cast in the film, and they knew each other as musicians. They had an act together. They had a trio at one point, 
And then they had a duo, and they cut a single where Joe Pesci did a Porky Pig impression. Not making this up. (laughs) And so they were friends for a long time, but they also, like friends, like show business friends, they had their ups and downs. And the fact that they had their ups and downs meant that when they played scenes together in which there was conflict or violent conflict, they were able to call that emotion up pretty vividly. So Pesci, as Jake LaMotta's brother, Joey, him and this mobbed up guy, Salvi, played by Frank Vincent, are friends. But at one point he gets mad at him and he smashes his torso and arm with the door of a car. And that's a brutal scene. In Goodfellas, he kicks him, stabs him, shoots him, all sorts of things during the Billy Bat scene. And I guess you could say that Vincent gets revenge in Casino because in Casino, he's one of the several people who takes Pesci's Nicky Santoro character and, and the brother of that character and literally buries them alive in a cornfield. Yep. Like they don't even shoot them. They strip them down to their underwear. They throw them in a ditch and they start burying them alive. It's harrowing. So yeah, they got into a lot of conflict. And I think at the point when they were both successful working actors, they were not as close socially as they had been in the days of struggle in New Jersey, which is a place you can really do a lot of struggling. (laughs) You'd say that again. Now, the brutal reality of the amoral mobster lifestyle becomes evident by the halfway point in the movie, where it really does become difficult to root for any of these guys after Tommy kills the innocent bartender Spider after having already shot him in the foot. For those who haven't seen the movie in a bit, Spider was played by Michael Imperioli, who obviously went on to make a name for himself as Christopher in The Sopranos. How did Imperioli gain respect from De Niro, despite the fact that he was only on set for a couple of days? He knew this was a big deal. He was an admirer of Scorsese. He said when he auditioned, he thought he might have been auditioning for the part of Tommy or for some very large part. He says, that's how stupid I was. But he was auditioning for the smaller part, but he recognized it as something that he could get recognition for. He was a trained actor. He had been around a bit, and he admired these people, as with Kevin Corrigan, who plays Henry Hill's wheelchair-bound brother. For Corrigan and Imperioli, Scorsese and De Niro were the guys they wanted to work with. They were the models for what they wanted in their acting careers. But they also knew better than to go fanboy on these guys. Imperioli knew to keep it cool that when De Niro shows up on a set, he's there to work. A couple of years ago, when there were accounts of the making of Joker, in which De Niro appeared with Joaquin Phoenix, there were accounts that De Niro didn't appreciate Phoenix's method of working, which he found kind of disruptive in terms of Phoenix's behavior. Not that Phoenix was doing fanboy stuff, but he was being aggressive, passive aggressive, what have you. And De Niro didn't appreciate that. So Imperioli knew that during the scenes when he's playing Spider that he's not going to say, oh, Mr. De Niro, what an honor to meet you. What an honor to work with you. He's there on the set and he's in the moment of being a bartender. He's waiting for the card players to show up. So he's sweeping up the floor. He's got a broom. He's sweeping the floor. It's not a real floor. I mean, it's a real floor, but it's not a floor of a place where this is happening. It's a film set, but he's sweeping. He's tidying up. And De Niro comes on, he sits down, he takes his mark. And rather than say, I'm looking forward to this scene, great to meet you, like working with you, the first thing he says is, what do you have it? 
And actually, De Niro was surprised by that because he had so much experience of doing the wrong thing that he didn't expect that. But then it kicked in, okay, Imperial is in character, so we're good. And he ordered a uh, scotch and soda. Imperial, he fixed him a drink, and off they went. And they did the scene. They did the scene a few times. It was a bit of a mishap involving a drinking glass that was not a breakaway glass, but a real water glass, which Imperioli smashed on falling and cut his hand and was rushed to the hospital emergency room, where they immediately tore open his shirt because his chest was bleeding because the fake blood from the gunshots was still there. <laughs> they saw this wiring under his shirt and they said, what the hell is this? He says, I told you, I had a cut hand. But yeah, he approached it well. And the scene did get him noticed. I think there's about anywhere from six to eight of the character actors in Goodfellas show up in Spike Lee's Jungle Fever the next year. And Imperioli is one of them. He plays one of the brothers of Annabella Chiora's character. And that led to a really productive collaboration with Spike Lee. Imperioli was one of the co-screenwriters of Summer of Sam and has appeared in a number of films for Spike as well. So he knew what he was doing, and it was really helpful to him. How tough were the domestic violence scenes for Leota? He was undergoing a lot of pain at the time because his mother was ill and passed away during the making of the film. Getting that intensity is, Joe Reedy observed, a lot of those scenes were just very, very tough on him and made him very exhausted. Another person who suffered was the cinematographer, Michael Bauhaus. At one point when shooting the scene where Karen Hill pulled the gun on Henry, got hit in the head when she threw the gun away. It wasn't a major injury, but she was very apologetic and bought him a pith helmet. You know, the shooting did go smoothly, but as Joseph Reedy observed to me, some of the more emotional scenes, particularly the really fraught scenes between Karen and Henry, Ray Liotta and Lorraine Bracco, really took it out of the actors and the atmosphere on the set, which was generally jovial, didn't become hostile, but it became more somber more respectful of the emotional tenor of the scenes that are being shot, which are very disturbing. They go by fast in the film, but they're really unpleasant. And it was hard for the actors to get that kind of destructive emotion going and then come down from it. Why do you love the scene of Henry and others cooking in prison? Because I love cooking. I mean, frankly, I picked up tips. I do slice garlic with a razor blade, not all the time, but sometimes. I do try to control my onion portion in a sauce, you know. I do understand that as Charles Scorsese playing Vinny says that the pork is the flavor. I was brought up in an Italian-American household. My mother is Italian-American and my grandmother cooked a big Sunday dinner every week and she had the Sunday gravy and everything and all of my inspiration as a cook for my mother. You know, I've branched out. But I do a lot of Italian cooking, and I uh, cook some of the meals that are discussed in the book. But that scene is interesting because it also shows, in a way that's funny and relatable, but it also shows the corruption of the system these guys are working in, where they're in prison for major felonies, and they're getting special treatment from the people who are running the prison because they're part of this con, money-making, contraband, smuggling operation. And because they're mobsters and because they have connections with law enforcement and politicians, they're so-called men of respect, so they get special treatment. In the book, it's even more so because in the book, Henry Hill talks about how the facility they were staying in was actually 
not even inside the prison itself. It was a little outside the prison and it was kind of like a dormitory. So if you're paying attention, this shows what the film is all about, which is venality. But there's also that interesting bonhomie within the scheme of venality where you're making these elaborate, delicious meals every night, getting a little drunk on whiskey and just hanging out. But for me, mainly, it's all about the cooking. Why is Tommy's death a great example of this supposed nobility within the Italian mafia being nothing more than a bullshit Hollywood trope? Well, because this whole thread through the film where the first time you see Tutty, it's from young Henry Hill's point of view. And in the narration, Henry Hill pauses and there's a shot you see the guy lumbering down there by the taxi stand and Liotta pauses and he says, Tutty, very tenderly. It's one of the few really tender moments in the film. And it's his nostalgia for these guys who are like family to him, who we love. And they're like family to Tommy from a boy too. And yet when Tommy goes to get made and he doesn't get made, spoiler alert, <laughs> the guy who puts the bullet in his brain and you're not used to seeing him this way because you're used to seeing him dressed for the cab stand at the pizza place, and he's in a suit now. But it's Tutty, Tutty who fed him pizza, who looked after him, who initiated him into the world of criminality. Not that his personality wouldn't have gotten him there anyway. And Tutty is doing Paulie's bidding. So what's all this about honor and always having each other's backs? And Tommy got killed for killing a made guy but killing a made guy is supposed to be impossible. And yet Billy Bats got killed. So what's the value in being made then? There's this whole hierarchy of lies concerning the honor among thieves that this crew supposedly subscribes to. And in a way, Tommy's death is the ultimate emblem of that. How true to life was Henry's frantic, paranoid day that ended with him getting arrested? The details are all in the book. The fact that he was making this elaborate dinner, the fact that he had his brother over, the fact that one of his drug mules screwed the pooch by calling from home. Yeah, all that stuff is there. What's brilliant about the movie is how it translates into this suite of sound and image that puts you inside of Henry's paranoia and edginess down to the potential auto accident while he's driving to the hospital and gets to the hospital looking like he just emerged from the grave and being approached by a doctor and given a Valium. This is one of Scorsese's most bravura sequences. It's that way because of the melding of sound and image and cutting. It's got an unbelievable rhythm to it. It's just chugga, 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 chugga all the way. And then there's these little pauses where he thinks the choppers are gone. And you get that blues riff from Muddy Waters saying it's going to be all right this morning. It gets inside of Henry Hill's head and then into your head because you're living Henry's experience. The soundtrack is certainly a memorable part of this movie. Where does Scorsese rank picking a movie's music among his filmmaker duties? And did he do anything different for Goodfellas? There have been periods and films where he's used a conventional orchestral score. That goes back to Taxi Driver, certainly, and then ahead to Cape Fear and Age of Innocence. But when he's setting a film in the present day, or even in 
the not too distant past. He has an encyclopedic knowledge and access to songs from these times. And it's almost like he thinks as much in terms of music as he thinks in images. And he also thinks in terms of wedding the music to the image. And he had some rules while making Goodfellas that if the music was in a certain scene, it had to be either from that era that was depicted or from the past, but it couldn't be music that hadn't come out yet because he wanted the film to stay grounded in the reality of the gangsters in that time. He was thinking of all this stuff well before making the film. Barbara DeFina says he had come up with the idea of using the Sex Pistols punk rock version of My Way while they were in Morocco shooting Last Temptation of Christ. And when Nick Pelleggi and Martin Scorsese were working on the script together, he said to Pelleggi at a certain point, write in the margin, cream. And Pelleggi wrote in the margin, cream, having no idea what that meant because Pelleggi, as he told me, was a Sinatra and Bennett fan. He wasn't a rock and roller. And what Scorsese meant was the group cream because he wanted to use Sunshine of Your Love. Now this brings up another problem, which is gangsters did not listen to psychedelic rock in the 60s. But he rationalizes that by saying, well, there's a bar in the jukebox, and that was a jukebox song at the time, and it's not too much of a stretch that someone was playing it. So he's always thinking of the rationale, but he's also thinking of what the sound will do to the image. And when you have that shot of De Niro sitting there smoking, and the camera movement is going in, and it's synchronized to De Niro's eye movements and the way he's smoking the cigarette, and then you have that faux Native American tribal beat from Ginger Baker, the dun-dun-dun, dun-dun-dun, dun-dun-dun. It all melds together, and it becomes a sort of a consciousness of its own. And I think that Scorsese does this in Goodfellas to the extent that it's genius, because it's about the consciousness of the film itself becomes alive with this choice of music. Are there any glaring flaws with Goodfellas? There's a lot of continuity errors, if that's something that concerns you. Thelma Schoonmacher, it's an apocryphal quote from Thelma Schoonmacher. I won't say the word that she's supposed to have said, but she's often quoted that matching with a cut, conventional continuity is for wusses. <laughs> and there are a lot, you know, when she did not get the Oscar for editing for Goodfellas, the person who did get it, who worked on Dances with Wolves, was there at the ceremony and asked her point blank, why'd you let that bad cut happen in Goodfellas? She said, which bad cuts? There are a number of them, which that editor wasn't expecting to hear. But there's a scene where Sonny Darrow's character, the owner of the Bamboo Lounge, is complaining to Paulie about Tommy's debt. And in one of the cuts, it's a shot, reverse shot dialogue. And one of the cuts, the cigar Ali is smoking is in his mouth and then miraculously in his hands. So it's a bad cut, but it's only a bad cut if you're looking for it. I saw the movie many times and I never noticed the cut until it was pointed out to me because their philosophy shared by Scorsese and Schoonmacher is to go for the performance, go for the emotion, go for the character. And they thought that what Sonny Darrow was doing in that particular take was so valuable that the continuity error that resulted was not important. Now, David Leonard, the assistant who was on the editorial staff at the time said, well, I don't know what was going on that was so special about that take, but that cut has always driven me crazy. <laughs> but for a lot of other people, myself included, it doesn't drive you crazy. Is Barbara Dafina the unsung hero of the making of Goodfellas? Yeah, I mean, that's one way of putting it. The story is interesting because of its absence to a certain extent. Dafina has kind of been written out of 
the history of Scorsese's filmmaking. And the more I found out about what went on, the more I had to actually step back a little because I didn't want that aspect of it to take over the book because they continued to work together as director and producer after they were divorced. They were divorced following Goodfellas' release. And there's a lot of mixed feelings on Dafina's side. There's a certain amount of antipathy on Dafina's side. Scorsese won't talk about her at all. And I was curious, but I also thought, well, there's a certain point where I have to cut this off. I can't let this take over the book. But I think she is an unsung hero of that film. And during the period when Scorsese and Dafina were speaking and working together, he was careful in terms of giving her credit on at least certain aspects of the makings of certain films. He credited her with coming up with a plan to shoot in actual casinos during the wee hours of the morning during the making of Casino, which saved them a huge amount of money because then they didn't have to build entire casinos on a soundstage. It's funny, one of the things that Dafina said to me was that she felt that Erwin Winkler, who is the credited producer on the film Goodfellas, she's credited as an executive producer, she felt that Erwin Winkler didn't really understand Scorsese's aesthetic as well as she did, didn't understand his sensibility, that he was more of a Rocky guy than a Raging Bull guy, despite having been a producer on both films. So that story is very interesting, and I think that Barbara will write her own book eventually, which will be an interesting thing to read. I certainly think it would be valuable, for sure. Now, you spoke with Scorsese in March of 2020, which is recounted in the epilogue. What is the most profound thing that he told you during that chat? It's funny, you know, when I was at Premier Magazine, I interviewed Scorsese many times, and the book is kind of bookended by two Scorsese interviews, because the first time I ever met Scorsese was in 1989, when he was editing Goodfellas, and he was talking about it, and he made me very excited to see it. And when I did see it, I was excited. Talking to him now in the context of his whole career, the thing that struck me with the most impact was how much he has to fight to get his films made, even today. Everybody thinks he's a big director and he has it easy. He gets these huge budgets for his films. Netflix financed The Irishman. They spent hundreds of millions of dollars. His next film... Killers of the Flower Moon has a huge budget. People think he has it easy. And to a certain extent, of course, he is very comfortable as a person. But when it comes to making films, he has to fight for everything. And he says that that hasn't changed at all since Raging Bull. He said, Raging Bull, during the making of the film, I had a great deal of studio support. And then every movie you mention after that, he'll put a pillow in front of his head when you mention a film and say, no, not that one. There's a lot of ways in which filmmaking, if you're a creative person, is a Faustian bargain. And he addressed that when we were talking about working with Harvey Weinstein on Gangs in New York. He says, well, at least I knew what Harvey was. Not in terms of Harvey Weinstein, the rapist, but Harvey Weinstein, the interfering, fractious, belligerent producer. He says, you know, I went into that with my eyes open. I knew who he was, and this is the only way to get the film made. And I knew that every day was going to be a fight. And he did say that, you know, there were some people along the way who would step up, the people who backed him on Last Temptation of Christ, Brad Gray, who helped him out with silence, and, of course, his producing partner over the years, Erwin Winkler, all people who believed in him and worked with him and made it easier for him. But he always came off like any film could just be his last. And this is still a vivid thing for him. 
Every film is a fight. Every film, I, this is a direct quote. Every film is a knockdown, drag out fight. And that's, if you want to make films the way Martin Scorsese says he does, you have to have the talent, A, and then you have to have the fight in you to make sure that your talent is allowed to thrive. So that was important. Hmm. Last question. Scorsese has obviously made a lot of gems in his career. Where do you rank Goodfellas amongst his films and why? I think it's a top five, along with Raging Bull, King of Comedy, and two more to be named later. I think one reason I rank it so high is because it's immensely watchable, immensely rewatchable. It's one of those films that it's a cliche to say it, but you catch it on cable as you're channel surfing and you keep the channel there, no matter where you've come upon it in the course of the film. The acting is incredibly vivid. The imagery is incredibly vivid. He's, again, working at a very high level of inventiveness and creativity and personal involvement. And the movie just plays. It's violent. It's shocking. It's funny. It's disturbing. It's a 20-course meal emotionally in a a two-and-a-half-hour package. Glenn Kenny is a film critic and author of the book Made Men, the story of Goodfellas. Glenn, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this great book. Trey, thank you so much. I really had a fun time talking to you. And thank you for listening today. You can check out all of our episodes at booksonpod.com or by searching Books on Pod with Trey Elling wherever you listen to podcasts. If you enjoy the show, please give it a five-star rating review on Apple Podcasts. Helps us grow the show. Until next time, I'm Trey Elling for Books on Pod.